Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. It is 8am on the 7th of November. We're in Trinity College, Cambridge, in front of a live audience who have come to hear us try to make sense of the midterm election results. It's a pretty mixed picture, but we're going to do our best. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. I have with me to try and make sense of all of this, Gary Gerstel, Professor of American History, Helen Thompson, Professor of International Political Economy. We're going to try and take a broader as well as a narrower perspective. We've done a few of these where we stay up most of the night and an election happens and then we record early in the morning and this one feels different. So no one is in tears, which uh, is normally the case. Certainly that was the case for Trump's election and for Brexit. And there isn't that sense of shock that there was after the two UK general elections. In some ways, this panned out as predicted in the sense that most people expected that the Democrats would take the House most people expected that the Republicans would hold on to the Senate. But the Democrats have probably done better in the House than expected, and the Republicans have almost certainly done better in the Senate than expected. So the results aren't all in as we speak, but it's looking roughly like 35-seat pickup in the House for the Democrats and four or five Senate-seat pickup for the Republicans. So, Gary, one way to think about this, and I've already heard people watching CNN overnight, the Republican spin on this is, this is just a normal midterm election, particularly for two-term presidents. So the history of two-term presidents is that they have tended to do pretty badly in their first midterms. So that was true of Obama. It was true of Clinton. It was true of Reagan. It was true of Eisenhower. It was true of Woodrow Wilson. You know, there's a pattern here. Is there a case for saying that there is something normalizing about this election for the Trump presidency? It feels oddly normal in the Trump era, but that hardly makes it normal. Well, the fact that we're not Freaking out. Freaking out. That hardly makes it normal for American history. I think in some ways it does resemble other midterms and other ways it does not. I think it's helpful to think about this as a rebuke to Trump. The Democrats had a big win in the House. The turnout, the number of seats they gained, very, very impressive. It's got to change the landscape in Washington. But this is not a defeat on the order of 2010 when the Republicans took uh, both houses from Obama or 1994 when the Republicans took both houses from Clinton. So it may not have that level of significance, but as a statement about resistance to Trump uh, and another America being mobilized to make its voice heard, the victory in the House is very important and very substantial. Because in a way, actually, the one it's closest to is Reagan in 82, and some Republicans are pointing to that. But I agree with you. I actually think it's a pretty remarkable result for the Democrats. So one reason is it's just much harder than it used to be to flip House seats because so many of them have been gerrymandered. So you know, the story that we've heard about American politics over the last 10 plus years is that actually in these elections, fewer and fewer seats are competitive, fewer and fewer districts are competitive. So to win 35 under those circumstances, plus 
with a booming economy, I look at Helen here, it's a result, right? I'm not sure. I mean, it is. There's no doubt about it in the sense of the consequences of it, because the Democrats' control in the House is very consequential for what will happen to the Trump presidency, not least because of the the chairs of these um, committees. House Intelligence Committee flipping from being chaired by a Republican to being chaired by a Democrat is is a big deal for what will come next in terms of the whole focus of investigations of the House Intelligence Committee is is going to change. And I think, though, in terms of the number of seats that the Democrats have won, obviously you're right that it has become more difficult to win House seats because of gerrymandering. But remember, this is also a situation that the Democrats expected to be in in 2016, which was to control the House. That was a kind of almost like a a minimal expectation of what was supposed to come with a Clinton um, victory. And that is not where that they've got to. I think it, what is striking is is the you know the composition of it. So you've got some states. I think Iowa is a good example where the Democrats, the last that I looked, could possibly win all of the seats, and I certainly think they'd won four out of five already. So they've done well in places where you think, okay, you would you would not expect such comprehensive Democrat success, but nonetheless, in the thirty range, in a position where. We're supposed to be talking about a uniquely malevolent, unpopular president. I'm not so convinced. And we will get on to the Senate in a second because it's, I mean, this is the tale of two, not just two electoral results, but almost two versions of American politics. And what we've seen in the Senate is the other America. But just to talk about the House a bit more, that gerrymandering issue. So the other thing that has been going on has been elections for governorships and so on. So there's also state-level politics here, and the Democrats, again, have done pretty well there. And a big part of the story of the Obama years was the wipeout of Democratic representation at the state level, which gives Republicans control over the electoral mechanism. Resting it back is a huge part of resting back American politics. And Gary, is this the start of that? It could be. It could be. A thousand Democratic officeholders got wiped out in the midterm elections of 2010. Under the second term of Obama's presidency, I think something like 26 states were under the control of the Republican Party, meaning the governorship in both houses of the legislature. If you include those states where they control two out of the three branches, up to 33. That's an extraordinary advantage. And that wipeout under Obama has not been sufficiently factored into an understanding of how American politics works, because it's so decentralized and so federalized that whoever controls the state apparatus in different states, which is where the elections, every election occurs, makes an enormous amount of difference. And and every 10 years, redistricting occurs because of a constitutionally mandated change to reflect population. And that is always politically Inflected. So whoever controls the state legislatures and the governorships in 2020 is going to have a profound influence on the shape of districting for the following 10 years. I don't think the Democrats did as well with the governorships and the state houses as, as they had hoped to in the last week. Oh, they, got a, they got a famous scalp, right? So there are some, they've got some symbolic wins. Scott some Walker. symbolic wins, some big scalps. Wisconsin. But they, they've also made progress. If you consider the magnitude of the wipeout in 2010, it's probably too much to think they could have reversed that organizational collapse in one election. If they are thinking of this as a two-step process, progress now, building on that, further progress in 2020, then it may be the beginning of something much bigger beyond the House itself. 
I was just going to say, I think that the, the governorship position is quite mixed because on the one hand, for the reason that Gary says, the Democrats or the Republicans have got quite some way to fall, but they've got all the organisational advantages that come from controlling um, states. And what you see, I think, is some high-profile victories like the one you've mentioned, David, in Wisconsin, but also high-profile failure for the Democrats in Florida, where clearly the Republican candidate was quite weak and the Democrats haven't been able to win. And it's also quite striking in Massachusetts that you know, the Republican governor there is held on by effectively by a landslide in a state that you know, if there's going to be a decisive turn in this respect, then Massachusetts needs to be going back Democrat. Florida is interesting. I watched Andrew Gillum's concession speech. It was a pretty eloquent, noble speech in its way, but he also didn't look too downcast, which is surprising given he had lost to not just a weak candidate, but a very Trumpy candidate. But he made a point of saying how thrilled he was that Florida's voters had passed the, I think it's a proposition, that will re-enfranchise people in Florida who had lost the vote because they had served time in jail. And the figure I saw was that's 1.5 million Floridans, which in itself, I mean, even the fact that that happened, never mind that it's now going to unhappen, is such a huge factor. I mean, potentially that is a more significant result than what happened in Florida overnight, which is the Republicans at the state level won. You can imagine that that was the turning point in Florida politics. But then you think, well, but then the Republicans might try and undo it. You know, there's that kind of back and forth quality to it too. But these things really matter, right? They do really matter. And we have to think about enfranchisement and disenfranchisement both going on at the same time. Uh, This is tremendously encouraging in the South, 1.5 former felons regaining the right to vote. The South has also been expert in in finding ways to disenfranchise the voters. And with a sympathetic Supreme Court, they may well be empowered to do that some more. Outrageously in Georgia, the idea that the man running for governor was also in charge of the state's electoral organization as secretary of state and allowed to continue in that role while he was running to win the election. There have been all kinds of accusations of very substantial irregularities in Georgia. I would also say that the Florida is is both a defeat and a victory. The Republicans are going to be crowing that they won the governorship and the Senate, and that's a big state for 2020. We have to think of how are the Democrats, when are the Democrats going to crack the South? Can they crack the South? They lost the, the South in the 1960s over race and the civil rights movement, and they came tantalizingly close this time in Texas, Georgia, and Florida. We're still waiting for one of those states to flip Democratic and go blue in a serious way. When that happens, that will signify a change in American politics and the configuration of the landscape. You can read it both ways, very encouraging, but it still has not happened. You can read everything both ways in this election. Virginia has now become a blue state, I would say, though. Yes. That yes. is a decisively so. It's a long time since the Republicans did well in the Virginia election. Yes, yes. Uh, and the, the question is whether that can be copied elsewhere. Part of why Virginia has turned blue is because the northern part of the state, now the most populous part of the state, is entirely populated by northerners and who, who, who work in Washington, D.C. That may be a model for the broader south as well, fastest growing region, many northerners coming in. But it's been very, very slow to happen. And in Tennessee, a state where I lived for 10 years, the results for the Democrats are just awful. The person who won the governorship was so right-wing regarded 10 years ago that she didn't fit in any spectrum of American politics. Marsha Blackburn, 
the Democrat who lost, Phil Bredesen, uh, had been governor of the state and had been regarded as a centrist blue dog Democrat. Carl Dean, a tremendously popular mayor of Nashville, which is very blue, got completely wiped out in the state race for the governorship, got only 40% of the vote. So the, the South, for the Democrats, remains a challenge. And they made significant inroads, but they still have to pick up a big victory or two there to fundamentally change the calculations of the Republican Party. Okay, so let's talk about Texas, because it was a big focus of this. And there was a comparison drawn between Texas and Tennessee. So in Texas, you have this very charismatic candidate, Beto O'Rourke, running on a pretty left populist platform. And then in Tennessee, you have someone who cleaves more to the center. So they both lose. But O'Rourke did surprisingly well. We haven't got the final figures, but the last time I looked, he was within three points of Ted Cruz. But I read a really interesting profile. There would be many profiles of him, but I read a really interesting one just before the election that said Republican operatives in the state said he is our worst nightmare and he is our dream opponent. So he's our worst nightmare because he's so good looking. He's a money raising machine. He sucks up attention. He can hoover up people's focus, but he doesn't know how to beat us. That's why he's our dream. He has not tried to persuade a single Republican to vote Democrat. What he has done is the strategy that you see in lots of places. It's, I think of it in some ways as the Corbyn strategy in this country, which is to persuade people, particularly young people who don't normally vote, to vote. Given that was his strategy, he did amazingly well. And yet, if I was a Texan Democrat, I would think he did about as well as you can do with that strategy. I mean, maybe there's a demographic shift that takes you over those extra three points. But he, he maximized that way of getting the vote out, and he still lost. And that would really give me pause. Well, as a member of the original generation that was going to change the world, the the 60s generation, and it did change the world, but not quite in the manner that we had expected. Uh, So we expected a a blue liberal wave of the the 60s and 70s to reshape America forever. And I've spent most of my adult life living under conservative administrations in America. So I'm skeptical of the argument that just when this generation, when you young people come into power and flex your muscles, everything will be all right, because I was part of the original generation that promised that. So I think I'm agreeing with you, David. I think it's not enough. Democrats have been making the argument for a long time, if we just get our people out to vote, we will win. And I'm not sure that's enough. They have to find a way of peeling off a portion of the electorate voting Republican. Now, there's some good signs about that in this election. The Democrats have made very serious inroads into stalwart Republican suburban districts. But they have not done enough of that in the South. And I think for them to be successful to draw the right lessons from this election, they have to say, we don't have to draw 40 percent, but we have to draw perhaps 20 percent of that electorate into our coalition if we're going to win. I was going to say something about Beto O'Rourke. I think what's really interesting about him is how much money he raised. It's just phenomenal amount. I think it was $35 million in the last quarter alone. I mean, there's scarcely any comparison um, with that. I think that he's shown that he's done that in terms of the digital platforms that he's used, but he was also very capable in using Ted Cruz, his opponent, as a means of raising that money. And I think you can see that the same thing, the Democrat candidate who lost in North Dakota also raised a phenomenal amount of money and was able to use the Kavanaugh hearings in order for that purpose. So you you, you use, if you like, an opponent, I won't say an enemy, an opponent, and say, look, you have to turn out, you have to give me money in order to defeat this symbol of everything that um, is wrong. But in both cases, the Democrat candidate in North Dakota has lost quite badly. And as you say... O'Rourke's got as close as he can get without winning. It hasn't actually paid off. But I think that this whole 
fundraise round an opponent, the symbol of an opponent has got limitations as a strategy as well. Because in a way, there are three elections happening here. There is a national election, and the Democrats have won. They usually win. <laughs> I mean, they won in 2016. They, if you just tot up all the votes across the nation, the Democrats seem to have a majority, and they will have won a majority of the votes here. There are district elections where Democrats seem to be increasingly skilled at mobilizing their support to win key target seats. And then there are the state-level elections, particularly in the South, particularly in the states they need to win to win the presidency. And they don't seem in this one to have cracked building the statewide coalition. The state ones are closer to a general election, but they're not because they are. And I was thinking particularly in Texas, I mean, we've talked about it quite a lot on this podcast, if the big divisions are generational and educational, partly in American as in British politics, and your, your, your core vote is young and college-educated, that does not get you a majority in many parts of the United States, including in many states, and you need to add to it. And I didn't see that strategy here, unless I'm missing it. I mean, certainly with someone like O'Rourke, you can go a long way with that coalition, but there aren't enough young people. Right. I agree with that. I think there was a strategy to peel off suburban voters. And I think the Democrats were very, very successful when we get the granular data from this. And that would presumably include quite a few non-college educated suburban voters. Yeah, well, I'm thinking mostly of college educated, but mainstream Republican voters. And these were crucial to Trump's election in 2016. Trump cannot win with his base alone. He needs base plus. And there have been serious inroads into an important part of his winning coalition. Into in, the plus. In 2016. And also the, the Democrats have shown signs in the northern states of beginning to rebuild the blue wall that collapsed in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. It's only partially rebuilt. It still looks a little bit like Hadrian's Wall. But at least it begins to look something like a wall, which after 2016, there was no wall at all left. So... There are some signs, and where they're having emphasis on the importance of health care and maintaining health care coverage, the Obama plan, there is some sign of the Democrats awakening to a need to bring white working class Democrats onto their bandwagon, and there, there's some signs of that. But I think the Democrats have to think harder than they have yet about how they're going to reclaim some of the white Democratic vote in America. I think without that vote, they probably can't win and be the kind of democratic party they'd like to be. I think the healthcare issue is really interesting because I think that no other single issue did as much damage to the Democrats in the Obama years as healthcare did. It's the reason why the midterm disaster happened for the Democrats in 2010 and it goes on all the way. You can still see it playing out in 2014 in those uh, midterm elections. I think for the first time since 2010, healthcare is now a liability for the Republicans and not for the Democrats because the Republicans have come in and they don't have an alternative health care. So people didn't like Obamacare, but they sure as hell don't like also, or most people sure as hell don't like having nothing in its place either. And the Republicans have given out very inconsistent messages about um, pre-existing conditions. So I think that has been a plus for the Democrats. They found a way of talking about health care that doesn't get them into all the difficulties that were there between 2010 and certainly 2014, maybe up to 2016. I think where they still haven't got a strategy is in terms of understanding the impact of themselves as a party on American politics, as opposed to just the impact of Trump. So it's a kind of strategy that involves saying we need to mobilise all this resistance to Trump without thinking that the things that they do themselves and the ways that they talk about politics might actually be a deterrent to the, some of the voters that they need to win over. Nancy Pelosi did say 
just yesterday, 100% the Democrats were going to take the House, and this was a referendum on healthcare, not a referendum on Trump. I think we've done quite well, actually, for something that was set up as a referendum on Trump. We haven't actually talked about him much yet, which is a sign that this is a mixed picture for him. My guess, partly because he's such a sunny, optimistic kind of guy, is that he will be quite cheered by these results. So one way to make that case on his behalf is that, okay, legislative politics is meant to be about passing laws, but that doesn't really happen anymore in the United States because you need all the branches of government to work together, and that's really hard. So the focus of politics tends to be on what they can do separately. So what can the House do? And we heard commentators say a lot of this overnight. This is the beginning of the oversight house, subpoenas, demanding the tax records. This is the kind of surveillance scrutiny bit of politics. What can Trump do with the Senate? He can get judges confirmed. Now, which would you pick? I would pick the second. And actually, not least, because the second is a positive achievement. I mean, Gary, we talked about this before, that the deal with the devil that many Republicans did is they will keep supporting this guy as long as he keeps reshaping the American judiciary. Whereas demanding tax records, talking about impeachment, but probably never doing it, that is a negative form of politics. It doesn't, it doesn't leave you with much to show for it. If I was Trump, I would take that trade. Well, he takes trades, so... Uh, and he, I'm not. <laughs> and so he will... One he, of those sentences doesn't really make sense if I was Trump. He, w- he will make this trade. The win in the Senate looks like a big win for the Republicans. And this has got to strengthen their ability to appoint not just judges, uh, but very conservative judges. We should not forget in, in all the drama over Kavanaugh that for Trump, he was a moderate establishment Republican appointee. He was not the right-wing fringe of the judicial world. We may see someone from that right-wing fringe as his next nominee. It's hard to imagine that Kavanaugh is a mainstream establishment Republican, but very close to the Bush family, to the Bush administration. Trump chose him as a compromise because he needed moderate votes in the Senate and perhaps a couple Republican votes. Now he doesn't need those moderate votes. And part of the outcome of this election is that the Republican Party is increasingly a Trump party. And that we're going to see very strongly in the U.S. Senate. So the judicial appointments are a source of concern, a source of power. He will also continue with a very important initiative, which is eviscerating the regulatory state, eviscerating existing agencies, which he thinks he can do through executive orders, and much of it, in fact, he can do. There's a a kind of a secret initiative going on between the Koch brothers, these arch right-wing libertarians in American life in the Trump administration. Koch brothers support Trump, who they don't really like in return for this vast deregulatory effort. And it's going to also increase Trump's authoritarian tendencies, which is, why do you need Congress anyway? It's a broken institution. Me, the great man, let me rule and let me issue orders. That's his preferred style of governing. There's a way in which this outcome is going to encourage those tendencies in him and deepen the sense that Congress is a broken institution. And one of my worries about this election going forward is that Congress has been broken for some time as a national legislative body. And this polarizing result of the election may continue that and thus deepen the tendencies in American life toward executive orders, authoritarianism, government by some other means than popular sovereignty. I would say... I mean, I agree with what Gary's saying about the, the, the Senate. I think on the House, though, that there is some significance to the control of the committees. And it isn't really just a case of 
Trump's tax, tax returns records, yeah. have been subpoenaed. It's what it stops, because the House Intelligence Committee has been very useful to Trump. At crucial points in the narrative about Mueller, it has come up with awkward revelations in terms of the Department of Justice and the FBI and the counterintelligence operation that began against um, Trump in the summer of 2016. There's several times when revelations that have come out of Mueller have been countered by revelations that have come out of the House Intelligence Committee, and that dynamic now stops. And I think Trump is going to struggle with that. I've assumed that Mueller has kept quiet. We haven't heard much because he doesn't want to do a Comey, right? He was absolutely terrified of being seen to... But he's now free to start up again, right? I mean, so the, the, that, that bit of the Trump drama has been put on hold and people have almost forgotten about it. It has not gone away. He has just... A lot of people learned the lesson from 2016, which is you don't want to be fingered for the result. But he's now able to pursue his agenda again. Absolutely. This is, this is, the Mueller investigation is going to start again, and one of the crucial points of defence that Trump has so far had against it is now removed, and I think that is consequential. And a report from Mueller, I think, will be coming soon. The signs are that he's pretty close to the end of his investigation, and he's going to make his final recommendations and indictments, and we can expect that to unfold over the next few months. And I agree with Helen that the, the changed landscape in the House could dramatically change the course of that debate and where it ends up. So on your point that there's a danger that the authoritarian side of Trump, which is the major side of Trump, gets enhanced here, the impeachment agenda, if that's what it is, was downplayed on the whole, though O'Rourke ran with it in Texas. And Nancy Pelosi has made fairly clear she doesn't see that as the job of this Congress. But is there a possibility that we are going to get a really serious confrontation, a kind of constitutional crisis-style confrontation over the next two years before the next presidential election, do you think, even if it stops short of impeachment? There may well be, and uh, we have to remember that the Democratic Party has been reinvigorated by the bringing in of all these new members and constituents, many of whom want to see Trump impeached tomorrow. And there's going to be pressure on the House Republicans to take on impeachment proceedings, no matter what Pelosi says. There's a, a left wing and, and also maybe a suburban wing of the, the Democratic Party that wants to see Trump impeached. So there's going to be mobilization on, on those grounds. Impeachment begins in the House, and, and then if impeachment articles are voted, it goes to the Senate, which acts as the trial and delivers the verdict. With this Republican Senate, there's no chance of conviction on impeachment charges. We have to remember that impeachment is fundamentally not a matter of law, but it's a political process. And it will unfold through various jockeying that goes on between the parties about how they think this is going to enhance their political future. But that is definitely going to be on the agenda when this new Congress takes its seat in January. Is this new Congress, this Democrat-controlled House, significantly more left-wing than it was yesterday? Because we're not just talking about seats that were won from Republicans. We also have new Democrats who won in primaries and so on. We have younger Democrats, some, not many. It's a slightly more diverse representative assembly. Has it? Do you have a sense of whether it has moved significantly to the left? I can't say yet that it's moved significantly to the left. There will certainly be the ranks of a left-wing caucus in the House will be enlarged as a result of this it's not, I would say, it does not seem to be on the order of the Tea Party insurgency of 2010 and the great Democratic Party left-wing insurgency. You have to go all the way back to 1934 uh, and the Great Depression, long time ago, almost, well, 100 years ago. Uh, and 
that's probably the most left-wing Congress to ever be seated in Washington, D.C., and played a very significant role in pushing Roosevelt to the left. This is not this is that, not that. This is not that Congress. So there are left-wing pressure groups outside that are deeply involved in the political process, and those pressures are going to be put. But there's got to be jockeying within the House, and I think much of that is to be welcomed. Just as in Britain, Corbyn has ignited a long-overdue discussion of what the Labor Party should be, so I think this Democratic blue wave in the House is going to ignite a discussion about what the Democratic Party should be. And that's an important discussion to have because I think it's not enough for the Democratic Party simply to be the anti-Trump party. If they're interested in a successful long-term future, they have to have a plan and a program and a set of politics that can win even when Trump is out of the picture. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So we have an audience here, and we're going to ask for some questions from them in a moment. But I've just got two more, one about recent history, one about longer-term history. So when we did speak last, Gary, it was before the Kavanaugh hearings turned into the great political drama, not just of the summer, but of many summers. And there was a period towards the end of that drama and after it was over where it felt like everything in the midterms was going to hang on this. And there was a really kind of heightened rhetoric around it, but that both sides had to dig in because their electoral future depended on it. And after Kavanaugh came out of that and got on the Supreme Court, there was a feeling that Trump had won and won big, and it had really energized Republican support. That seemed, unless I'm mistaken, it seemed like it dissipated. I mean, maybe if these elections happened a month ago, we would still be riding that wave. For instance, watching the coverage last night, I didn't hear Kavanaugh's name come up once. I mean, sure it did in various places, but I missed it. Did, did it in the end not matter so much? I think it did matter. Because I think b- before the Kavanaugh hearings, the... Republican base, and midterms often turn on on the basis of the two parties. The Republican base was rather inert. It had been a bad summer for the Republicans in in a lot of respects. And it looked like the Kavanaugh hearings were going to go very badly for the Republicans. And then in this remarkable turnaround, it turned out to be a, a tremendous gift to the Republican Party and enlivened the base in ways that had not been enlivened before and gave Trump an opening he did not have before that he immediately sees. There's probably no one more brilliant in American politics today or in a long time at sensing and seizing opportunities. The turnout for this election was remarkable, 114 million, up over 83 million over the last midterms. I mean, that's a huge increase. That's not just a blue wave. That's a blue and red wave. And I think the Kavanaugh hearings and the consequences of that in the interior of the country were very consequential. Tragically, the tragic events that occurred in America a couple of weeks ago threw Trump off his game. The, the massacre of Jews in synagogues in Pittsburgh and the pipe bombs sent to numerous Democratic elected officials 
seriously interrupted the momentum that Trump and he said, he said that. He said, we developing. had great momentum until... And he's right about that. Each of those events pushed him off the front pages or the web pages for three or four days, cost him critical time. So oddly, what his violent right-wing fringe supporters did in these instances actually ended up stalling some of that momentum and creating a bit of an opportunity for a democratic comeback. So it, yes, it mattered, and, and but it was also in some respects contained by the tragic events of October. To be fair to him, he would say that, at least in the case of the killer in the synagogue, it was not one of his supporters. But He can say that. <laughs> I think the Kavanaugh really did still matter, because I think it's quite hard to explain, as Gary said, how Republican turnout has been as high as it has without Kavanaugh. And I think that the thing that Kavanaugh did in the end was to let loose an anger with the Democratic Party or parts of the Democratic Party in the way it was seen as behaving during the Kavanaugh hearings in a way that just wasn't there in terms of the Republican response to the Democrats' response to the Trump presidency um, before that. In part, that is because you know a lot of Republican voters care about the Supreme Court. That is, in some sense, the pact that they made with Trump, the ones who don't like Trump, that they waited a long time to move the Supreme Court in a conservative direction, and they were not going to give up their chance of doing it. But it is also, I think, about the Democratic Party and the way in which it behaved during those hearings, or say its leadership behaved during those hearings, which is extremely off-putting to a great number of people. And I think the Democrats have paid a price for that in this election. The last question from me, which is about the economy, but also the wider historical arc here. Gary, you've just written a long, very interesting piece that we'll tweet a link to about the sort of 30, 40-year story in American politics from the New Deal world to the neoliberal world, for want of a better word, that is now coming to an end. But you try and unpick beyond electoral cycles what the deep trends were that shifted America, and not just America, in the neoliberal direction. And in your narrative, the Clinton presidency is absolutely crucial. Now, I mentioned earlier that Clinton and Obama, okay, they were two-term presidents, and, and the story usually is, yeah, they had a setback in the midterms, but they bounced back, and they won the presidential election, and they had another six years, and so on. But actually, two years in, to get that kind of rebuke from the voters does make a big difference. So my question is kind of, will it make a difference for Trump? But do you think it made a difference in the past? I mean, for instance, the Clinton story, is it part of understanding the fundamental shift in American politics that in 1994, he was trounced in the midterm elections by the Republicans? Yes, and he was trounced. He was repudiated. I think the distinction between repudiation and rebuke is useful here. I think Trump was rebuked, not repudiated. Clinton was repudiated, trounced in 1994, and that profoundly changed his politics. I mean, it moved him to the right. It moved him far to the right. That's going to be my question about Trump, but well, uh, will it move him to the left? But he has not suffered the magnitude of defeat that Clinton suffered. So I I don't think we can expect that we're going to see that kind of movement. The question is whether we're moving out of the Clinton era, the neoliberal era, which I see as the the era not just of the Republicans, but also the Democratic Clintonites and also the Blair Laborites. Are we moving out of that era? And if so, what would the new era look like? Trump is part of this new era. Bernie Sanders and a reawakened left in the Democratic Party is part of this era. One of the possibilities for Trump, and I I don't think the odds of this are high, but it should be put on the table, we should think about it, is what a left turn on his part might look like. And it would look like an infrastructural deal 
with the Democrats to rebuild America's crumbling infrastructure, provide a lot of jobs. It would look like some kind of deal on immigration, strengthen border in return for some path toward citizenship. And it might also look toward strengthening the old age and health security of working class people in America. This was part of what Trump promised. He hasn't done much to eventuate that in his presidency. But if he turned to the left, that would be what it looks like. And we should remember that we are living in uncharted times. The piece I wrote talks about the end of a way of politically ordering America. And we are in a period of transition. We don't know exactly where we're going to end up, but it makes possibilities that seemed inconceivable 10 years ago more conceivable today. So we should not exclude that possibility. Yeah, I think these comparisons are pretty interesting because what happened in the Clinton case was on the one hand that you actually get a period of legislation that comes out of the Clinton presidency post-1994 because he starts legislating with Republicans. But actually at the same time you have this intense partisan confrontation about trying to remove Clinton from the presidency via impeachment. If you move on to then what happened with Obama, all the legislation actually comes before the midterm elections in 2010. And then what you have afterwards is scarcely any legislation and what decision-making that there is is done by executive order, which has caused some of the difficulties that have now allowed Trump to undo things by executive order since um, Trump's election. So if you've been pessimistic about it, you would say that actually the circumstances in which you can get bipartisan legislation in this situation in which we're now in, a president from one party and at least one House of Congress being controlled by the other party are not there any longer. But as you say, Gary, you can see the potential for Trump actually making some common cause with the, with the Democrats in the House. And indeed, I think if you go back to the very beginning of the Trump presidency, you can see him trying to do that in relation to some of the Democrat leaders in the Senate in regard to infrastructure. The problem that Trump has got is, is the Republican Party in Congress is not interested in that. He could make that deal, but the Republicans in the Senate are not going to support it. I was going to say that. That's the deep irony here. Unless he so has Trumpified the Senate that they will follow him left, which seems to me unlikely, the result of this election is that actually his freedom of manoeuvre here is reduced. Right, that seems like a good point to ask for maybe three or four questions. So, um, yeah. My question is about the economy. In 2016, we saw broadly a growing economy, but a lot of people feeling that the economy was actually getting worse, even when they personally were getting better off. What do you think, based on what we've seen overnight and going forward into 2020, as to the impact of the economy compared to the impact of social and cultural issues? And is it still the economy stupid? I think the question of of the economy in this election is really complicated because, on the one hand, there's a pretty positive story that Trump's been able to tell about the economy from the headline data, you know, including a, a quarter earlier in the year of growth above 4%. And generally, the quarters of growth have been higher during the Trump presidency than they were in the last few years of the Obama presidency. I'm not saying there's a correlation there. I'm simply saying that that is the case. But it's also the cl- clear, if you go on under the headline data, that there are still signs of you know, significant weakness. The American housing market has done as badly in the last six months or so as, as it was in the run-up to the housing crisis in 2008. We have to separate out the fact that there have been economic benefits to groups of voters from the higher levels of growth and higher levels of 
or lower levels at least of unemployment over the last few years with the fact that there still is a lot of economic anxiety out there and how that then translates into the way in which people vote when they're also concerned about cultural or social issues or or whatever is a complicated question. I think it's fair to say that you would have expected the Republicans to have done less well if the headline economic data hadn't been as good as it was, but I'm not sure we can go much further than that. I think the economy matters. I agree with Helen. The the buoyant current state of the American economy no doubt helped Trump and the Republican Party in this election. There's got to be a bill that comes due, I think, for the tax cut. And when this boom in the American economy ends and a recession begins. So I expect the economy to to be very much an issue in 2020. And there's two issues about the economy. One is the business cycle up and down. And the other is the fundamental reordering of opportunity in nations between those who are part of the globalized economy and those who are not. And that is a major issue in virtually every industrialized country, in Britain as much as America. And, and Trump is an expression of the resentments that that has generated. That will continue to percolate through American politics for some time, but exactly how is hard to predict. Okay, so you spoke about how the elections have, well, probably will indicate a path for the Democrats. Do you think there is a discernible path or do you think there's still, we still have to think about that? It's a really important question. Actually, something that we haven't talked about here is leadership on the Democratic side. So Nancy Pelosi is Speaker of the House again, but the big unanswered question is who, not just who might be the candidate in 2020, but who will become one, if not the figurehead for democratic politics, and not just for the resistance, but for an alternative political agenda. And there were some hopes it might be O'Rourke, but it's not going to be him. In fact, many of the people that it was hoped it might be lost. I mean, if this is part of the path, do you see a path to leadership in the current Democratic Party? I don't see a 2020 candidate emerging right now from this election, except for those who are already out there, like Elizabeth Warren. And and it should be said, Democrats always say, if you'd ask people at this point, no one saw Obama, no one saw Clinton, no one saw Jimmy Carter. The way the Democrats do it is they find someone. Yes, and I actually I, I agree with I agree with that. And sometimes they because, find Dukakis. Uh, Ameri- <laughs> American politics has a way of throwing up candidates out of nowhere incredibly quickly, and all it takes is one election to make someone able to run for the presidency. I think the Democrats are going to need a convincing economic program. So I prefer to think in programmatic terms rather than personality terms. And I think they have to figure out how to manage the cultural question, which the Kavanaugh hearings threw into sharp relief. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of energy in the Democratic Party now. All this minority mobilization, women mobilization, there's going to be a heavy demand within the Democratic Party for a minority or black presidential candidate in 2020. You can see the lines of that battle already shaping up. But there's also clearly been a backlash in America against the blackness of Obama and the femaleness of Hillary Clinton. And that remains a very live issue. And that's why the Kavanaugh hearings matter, I think, as much as they do, because that remains a third rail in American politics. And the Democrats have to give some serious thought to how they're going to manage that and marry their cultural concerns with an economic program. This is not a new matter for the Democratic Party, but it's going to be one that they have to 
engage creatively. And hopefully some of the younger people who are coming into Congress will offer new solutions that will be better than the ones that the Democrats have been trying for the last 20 or 25 years. Do you see a path, Helen? I think in, in part, but I think that there's a set of obstacles in the way. I, I think the most encouraging thing from the Democrats' point of view was that they found something to talk about that wasn't Russia and the resistance when it looked earlier in the year that that was the only sort of message that was coming out. And the fact that they've got back on the front foot in healthcare, on healthcare, I don't think should be underestimated. I agree with Gary on the other two points, is that I do think that they have to think harder. And I don't think it's, it's necessarily about culture just in itself, or at least in the old culture war issues. They need to think harder about the ways in which that they act, the responses that that induces in people who don't agree with them. And I'm not convinced that the leadership of the Democratic Party has quite understood that. I think on the economic question, I think I would be a bit pessimistic for them because I think they've got to do more than just think about that in terms of the domestic economy because Trump has changed things quite profoundly in terms of the bigger economic picture because of the confrontation that he's put into motion with China and the future of the international trading order. And we haven't really got any kind of response from the Democratic leadership to that beyond a kind of, we don't like protectionism. I mean, ignoring the fact that the Democratic Party's been pretty protectionist for quite some time, but the plates are changing, so to speak, in the international economy. And this confrontation with China is a very important part of that. And the Democratic leadership has, has to articulate something about that going forward. You said that they got away from talking about Russia. We haven't mentioned it. Are we being sensible or are we being naive not to even consider the possibility that this was not a free and fair election? I mean, what happened to the thought that Russian bots decide these things? Did, did someone work out how to stop them? I think there has been a lot of work going on in that respect. Uh, uh, On the other hand, if uh, the American electoral system is a hacker's delight, I shudder to think about how I cast my absentee ballot in these clerks and all these little offices across America. I think there are 13,000 different units running the election in in America, heavily decentralized, many by people who are well-meaning but not very skilled at what they're doing. And you think if you wanted the system to to really hack into and take over, this would be your dream system. So I think that has to be investigated. And I think uh, we also have to look carefully at domestic efforts to uh, contain voting and disenfranchise people from actually casting their ballots, long lines, broken machines. All of this has to be investigated uh, very carefully. We just don't know right now uh, what impact that has had. But it, it has to be reviewed in light of the history of 2016. But at least in some states now, Democrats can investigate. I mean, that's why it really matters who controls the states. They can investigate. and Not all, though. Not in Georgia. And Facebook and the other big tech companies have been called to account and are, are doing much more than they had been to try and control aspects of this process. So the Democrats didn't do very well in the Senate last night. They've lost in North Dakota, in Indiana, and in Missouri. And those are all three quite rural states. But the United States has more rural states than it has predominantly urban states. Isn't the biggest gerrymander the structure of the Senate? And considering that, how are Democrats in the future ever going to face a map where they can win and control the judicial appointments process? That is another... Excellent question. And it gets to this point, which last night really brought out, which is that the electoral system matters. And there is more than one electoral system, plenty more than one electoral system in American democracy. The more democratic bits favor 
the Democrats. The less democratic bits, the Senate, but also the Electoral College, still favour the Republicans. I mean, the Electoral College is, is the historic gerrymander, if one's allowed to say that. If you look to 2020, Gary, do you, do you see the bit of the system that favours the Republicans continuing to win out? Because that's the, you know, in, in broad democratic terms, the demography also favours the Democrats, but they are piling up votes in cities where they don't need them. And there is no means of redistributing those votes because of the Electoral College and the Senate. The Senate and the Electoral College have biased elections in America toward rural areas since 1789. It would take a constitutional amendment to change that. Not going to happen in my lifetime and probably not in the lifetime of all you young people sitting here in the audience. And so in that respect, Republicans have a built-in advantage, a way of containing the urban multitudes who have been a concern for American, let's call them small r Republicans, since the very beginning of the Republic, that they are suspicious populations and they have to be watched and regulated and if necessary, disenfranchised. So there's a structural reason that gives the Republicans a built-in advantage and allows them to control America with a minority, which is what is going on in America today. However, there have also been substantial periods when the Democratic Party has found ways successfully to argue against that and to mobilize against that. And they lost that ability for a while. A fellow academic once said to me when she was complaining about the state of politics, she said, when Democrats get upset, they go to a lecture or to a podcast to listen to talking heads. When Republicans get upset about the state of politics, they run for the local parent-teachers association, take it over, and then take over the local government and then the state government. There's some truth in that. And what Democrats have ignored is the mechanisms of politics at the very local level in American politics. They are so important. You can't, no matter how brilliant you are and how committed you are, if all the progressives live in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago, the Democrats are not going to win. They have to find a way to build organizations in these states, build these organizations from the bottom up. And I think there is encouraging news from this election that the Democrats understand the imperative of fighting the Republicans toe-to-toe, state-by-state. And in this respect, the mobilization in the South, even though it didn't work, is very encouraging because the Democrats are beginning to understand that this is where this battle has to be fought and waged. And just to say, it is also true O'Rourke didn't win, but people won on his coattails. And that's a big, big shift in Texas, too. The fundamental point is America is a federal state. It's absolutely pointless anybody complaining about the Senate because the Senate is there as a representative of the fact that America is a federal um, state. It's only 10 years ago, in 2008, that the Democrats won a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. In 2012, they were still winning seats in Montana and North Dakota, which are rural states more than Missouri is. So the Democrats are perfectly capable of winning seats in the Senate. They've just got to go back to figuring out ways in which they were competitive, as they were in 2008 and 2012, and have been less so this way around. This is why the Democrats' very success in 2012 is why this election in the Senate has been so favourable to the Republicans. And as I say, I don't think they're going to get anywhere by complaining about the, the nature of the Senate, because as Gary says, it's simply not going to change. I'm going to ask one last question, and it's a sort of question that invites a one-word answer, but it's not who's going to win in 2020, because we don't know. But do you think 
that the Trump presidency is more secure or less secure, given everything we've talked about, Mueller and Kavanaugh and the divergent results last night, is it more secure or less secure than it was 24 hours ago? That's two words, less secure. Moderately less secure. And I think moderately more secure. So someone's going to be right. I think we can agree that we are going to have more to talk about here. Thank you very much to the Trinity Politics Society for hosting this event. This is not the only thing that's going on in the world of politics at the moment. You could say a much more important election happened recently in Brazil. And we're going to be putting out a special extra episode this weekend to try and make sense of that. Is Bolsonaro the Brazilian Trump or is it much, much more serious than that? That'll be out on Sunday. Do join us for that. We're going to be talking about Italy next week. It's not all about Trump. It's not all about America. But for today, it was. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Well, I do, I, I do what I always do on election nights here I, uh, in the U.S. I go to sleep at 10 and get up at 4. <laughs> and then pray that I'm not devastated when I look at my eyes. <laughs> I did two-hour shifts of sleep, watch, sleep, watch, sleep, watch. Uh, I went to bed, then I got up at 2 and checked the results and thought I'll go back to sleep, and I didn't. And then I sneezed and sneezed and sneezed. It's not all about Trump. It's not all about America. But but for today, it was. I'm going to do that again because you're not know meant to laugh. <laughs> uh. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.